Welcome to the Afghanistan Project Podcast. I'm Beth Bailey, and today I'm excited to be joined again by Will Selber, a Lieutenant Colonel in the U.S. Air Force and a volunteer with the non-governmental organization Operation Sacred Promise, which works to evacuate members of the Afghan Air Force and Army Special Mission Wing from Afghanistan. Um, today, we're really excited to have you here, Will, to talk about um, the evacuation of personnel from, uh, well, of everyone from Afghanistan in August of 2021 and the role that you played in those uh, pivotal weeks and months. So thanks for being with us and talking about that. Thanks for having me on again. That. Yeah, glad to have you. This is going to be really uh, interesting because you have such a unique background and you were getting involved in, you know, I, I think it's best to start with when did you get involved with the NEO and the, um, you know, all of the evacuation operations that were ongoing in Afghanistan? Yeah, I, uh, so I, I was in Afghanistan from June of 2020 to June of 2021. I was uh, at the embassy at the, I was at the defense attache office there. And uh, so I left and then probably about Three weeks later, I assumed command of a squadron. Uh, so I became a commander and then I started to see kind of the writing on the wall. Um, I think when I got really nervous was when, you know, the first the first province fell and I kind of figured that there would be some that would fall. When we were there, we were like, you guys are gonna have to hold some of these places. You're gonna have to let some of them go. I had conversations with various senior ranking uh, Afghan officials but when I saw Jaws John fall up in the northern portion, or or Dostum, uh was a uh, you know stronghold, that's when I knew it was gonna fall. Um, and so I was still in command. And then, you know, I think uh, the fifteenth was actually either on a Sunday or a Monday. I don't remember exactly uh, when they when the Taliban came into Kabul, and I was you know I'd already started getting texts and phone calls from Afghans. I started uh, texting some of my former compatriots, seeing where they were. All of them were in the airport by then. Um, and so I would say about three days after, maybe on the 16th or 17th, I got a, a phone call uh, from my former organization that I worked with. And they asked me to come up to DC and help them uh, basically with the NEO that was going on. So. I left command uh, and I flew up. Uh, my wife uh, was here um, at the time with our one and a half year old daughter, I think, maybe one year old daughter at the time. And yeah, it was uh, it was crazy. I, I, I flew up, walked into uh, our higher headquarters. I think I was wearing uh, a T-shirt and um, shorts and flip flops. I walked in and it was like a TV, like a movie, you know, like everybody's running around and uh, I just kind of walked into my former boss and I was like, what's going on and where do you need me? And, you know, that's a T-skiff. And so they had stuff they had to do. So I told them that I just give me, uh, just give me some phones and I'll start getting people in. So we made the decision at that point in time that I was going to get headquartered at a hotel in downtown uh uh, DC and I was going to work with my former interpreter who had just gotten back from Kabul. He was on the first wave of the NEO, um, had just came back and me and him were going to get people in. So that's how it started. That's incredible. I actually want to go back to sure. June of 2021 sure. because is that when you started to see those places fall or did you have 
an inkling. It sounds like you had an inkling that things were going on, but really the thing started to fall in August. So what was it like in June of 2021 being at the attache's office? Yeah, it was, it was, I would say that we, I didn't think it would fall that fast, but I was worried about it. Um, You know, I think it's easy. I think it's safe to say that what was going on was the ANA was hollowed out at that point. Uh, pretty pretty big. Uh, the, it was maybe half the strength, of maybe 150,000, 200,000, something like that. Um, and they were really, the organizations that were really being used at that point were like the ANASOC, the commandos, and then the Afghan Air Force. Those were the really big heavy hitters. And unfortunately, they used them, they were being used so much that they were kind of wearing down. And then when they, when President Biden announced the withdrawal, the problem was is that the enablers went right, and that was the big the big thing, is that the enablers, the people they were able to not just fix the airplanes, but also just do like regular finances and pay. So when that kind of happened, you know, we started to get the inkling that this was going to be a pretty bad situation. There was a lot of problems throughout the entire year I was there. I mean, I kind of saw the the whole thing, and um, people you know, kind of forget that that was in the middle of COVID. Um, so a lot of our partnering was kind of down at that point uh, because of the disease. Um, and then also, you know, I, I would just say that the, the Taliban were doing a really brutal uh, assassination campaign all throughout the country. Um, and so a lot of guys that I knew and I, I, I met with and I engaged with were getting killed at that time. And it was very, very effective throughout the entire year. And you could see the morale really start to go down um, throughout the whole time. And, you know, indicators of people like when I first got there, I'd meet with people. um, And then by the end, it was people were wearing, you know, body armor to come visit me. Uh, People were straight up asking me like, hey, you need to get me out of here. I need a visa. Like the amount of that going on was just increasing. So by the time I left, I was very worried interesting to hear all that because you clearly are witnessing this buildup and and I hadn't heard anything about the assassination campaign prior to the Taliban taking over maybe little bits and Mm -hmm. things but I wonder then you know we talked to other people who were at HKIA and they said that you know I mean they were sent there because it was an emergency situation they were over in other locations why did you witness any attempt to prepare for this neo or was it just kind of like things are getting worse and we don't really know what to do yet or had you missed that critical yeah um, there were preparations the entire year i mean i think okay why they you know i wasn't privy to the uh that wasn't you know that's the marines that 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 planned that um why Mm -hmm. it was hkai not bagram and stuff like that they would have more information on but yeah i mean i think I think it's safe to say that nobody and people knew we were, it was in trouble and there was a lot of talk about when it was going to fall. Like it was going to take that one thing and it was going to be quick. I think everybody knew it was going to be quick. Um, And it was just the bottom fell out. And I think that I think people, you know, and you've seen this in cigar reports, um, in their articles of when, you know, when we announced that we were withdrawing, like it was a huge morale drop and it was, you could feel it. 
you could feel it in the Afghans. And people don't realize is that for a lot of them, they didn't, they kind of believed us. They didn't believe us because we'd been saying it for 20 years. Like, we're going to leave. We're going to leave. No, this time we're really going to leave. So, you know, I'm talking to senior Afghan government officials and I'm like, you guys, this is really going to happen this time. This isn't going to be like before. We're really leaving this time. And so I think they just, the morale at the mid-level and lower level was already pretty low um, because of some of the Doha agreement stuff. Because when we uh, released the 5,000 prisoners, that was another big blow to morale. I'm talking to people. They're really scared. Uh, they didn't understand why we were letting these guys out. They didn't think it was a good trade. That was common throughout when I was talking to senior Afghan government officials. Um, so, yeah, I, I think um, I wasn't surprised um, that it fell. I was surprised by how fast it did. But it was going to be something like that. It was just going to be one thing and then the chain reaction starts. Sure. And I've heard too, and maybe you can comment as to this, you know, from, uh, in fact, I can think of one man in particular who uh, was a pilot and he told mm -hmm. me that, you know, they didn't get enough weapons to be able to do their job. So when they mm -hmm. weren't left with enough, um, I forget what he called, it was some kind of like rocket or yeah. something to, to go and fight the enemy. And so if you can't actually protect your troops on the ground, you know, that's, it's not entirely morale maybe it's also supplies and the things sure. that you need to do your job did you see any of that or have you heard it especially with your work with operation sacred promise i mean you're talking with these people yeah. i'm guessing that, do they say the, yeah the afghan air force ran out of ammunition i mean it, it, it was used a lot um you know towards the end uh the cores so there was a lot of problems um part of it with ghani um he kept on changing core commanders constantly uh, throughout the second half of uh, uh, of 2020 and then really into 2021, he was just rotating them around. Um, so the morale in Kandahar was really low. Had some really bad core commanders down there that weren't very good and they weren't aggressive and they weren't going out. So they were using the easy button, which was just have the Afghan Air Force drop bombs. Um, so they were running out of supplies and it happened a lot. And, you know, you could see it you know, with the pilots on the one hand being like, like, this is a target that you don't need us to use these ordinances on. You guys can go out there and get them. Um, but in a lot of the cores, they just were, were really hollowed out. And um, unfortunately, the young core commanders like uh, Sammy Sadat, um, uh, Hebatula, uh, not Hebatula, uh, Alizai, General Alizai, who was the last uh, uh head of the Afghan National Army. He was the Anasak commander uh, towards the end, and then he got elevated. Some other guys like Mustafa Wardak. Who, uh, these are some guys that were younger uh, that had kind of come up through the American system. It was They started to get put in at the very end, but at that point it was too late. Um, so, yeah, th there was stuff like that going around where they, they were running out of ordinances. There has been some resupply, but it was just – you couldn't keep up with it because it was the easy button to always push was the Afghan Air Force. Sure. And I can imagine, though, in places like Kandahar and Helmand, yep. which would be the places you would first think would sure. fall to the Taliban. I wouldn't want to be yeah. on the ground, probably in those. It's, I cannot imagine what it would have felt like to be a member of the Afghan military at the time when all of this was happening and and places are falling and your, you know, friends are getting killed. It's, it's been quite an ordeal for all of those people. And we've heard a, a lot of people have a lot of strong feelings about mm -hmm. whether they did enough. 
Sure. And I think it's got to be hard to make that value assessment unless you've been in their shoes. And personally, I would not have wanted to. Yeah, I think shoes. if you watch, I don't know if you've seen the the documentary Retrograde. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, I think it's a really good one. Um, you know, I I know Sammy Sadat. He's a pretty well, and uh, yeah, it was. It was very sad to see that happen to him. He was a uh, a very very charismatic uh, and really uh, hard charging commander, and I wish he would have been in charge a little bit sooner, and they would have pulled him up to Kabul months before. Yeah. Yeah. If this were an interactive event, I can imagine some people right now saying some things because he definitely inspires. Yes. Those kinds of feelings, but he also inspires opposite kinds of feelings, and that's the interesting thing about. Mm -hmm. You know, the path forward for Afghanistan is sure. that there are a lot of, uh, you know, things yeah, that tend to mark yeah, people I mean, in this war. Yeah, there was, you know, I think that he was controversial. There's a, some uh, allegations against him. And so, same with Razak uh, in Kandahar in, in, in the 2000s. Um, I, I would just say that, like, you're, you're not going to have anybody who's going to have his hands completely clean. No, not, absolutely not, not. Not there. No way. No. No, yeah. it's been, you know, decades of brutal war between yeah. countrymen. They have yeah. a lot of very long held. Yeah, it's um, we were just talking to Bill Raggio about we okay. built a, a like a an American style military with the Afghans. And yeah. that's not what they needed for that, you know, for this particular fight that they're in. And it's a reminder that, you know, we haven't been engaged in that kind of battle that they're engaged in. And it's something I've always believed is that we didn't quite understand Afghans well enough. Never in, did. And the culture Never. and Never. you couldn't, not once. yeah, you weren't going to win there unless you understood that. And yeah, yeah we built a, uh, I think, you know, when I talk to people about what happened with the ANDSF, I think tagline is we built a rich man's army for an impoverished nation. And then we're shocked when, when they, they couldn't hold it um, because they didn't have the enablers. The Afghan Air Force was very good. I mean, they had some really good pilots. Um, the commandos were very good, um, but it was the back half, the enablers, the logistical system, um, which was very complex. And by the time we started to hand it over to them, it was too late. Right. And the contractors, right? That's what you're talking about when you're yes. saying the logistical system, the fact that they were relying on contractors yeah, to be able to so do... So when people say like there's 2,500 American soldiers there and then you add the Europeans, that's that's great. There's also 20,000 contractors there. And that's the backbone. That's what people don't, yeah. don't, don't, don't realize. The contractors there, they were the ones that were really training the Afghan Air Force maintainers. And, you know, it's always hard to keep maintainers in Afghanistan because... A, they're, they tend to be enlisted and so they don't make as much money, but they also speak fluent English usually. And so they're going to bounce. And it was always difficult to keep them there. Ah, oh, that's, it's really interesting. The, the, the things that we've created with yeah. our systems, you know, you yeah. need those people, but yeah, yeah, I would, I would take the opportunity also to yeah. move out of bounds. So let's, let's fast forward back now okay. to DC. Sure. You're in this hotel. Yep. Two weeks, right? You said of uh, yeah. what were those weeks like? Did, I mean, how much of that? It, what was your everyday like, or did it change yeah, day to day? I, I kind of, I walked out. I got into a cab. I drove. I got into a, uh, an Uber, and I went to the hotel. My my interpreter was there, um, and we just started. Like, I had a list, and I just started kind of writing down people who we needed to get out. 
And so it's before I did anything, I kind of made a list. Um, and I was like, we need to find all these people and find out where they are. Uh, before I'd gotten up there, I'd, I'd already gotten some people into the airport. Some of my old interpreters, I'd already gotten them in. Uh, but then I, because I was up in DC, I had the contact information for some of our other contacts. So I just kind of racked and stacked out of like a hundred people. I just kind of looked at it and was like, these are the people who are most at risk. And it was just me and my interpreter. And we were just like, these are the top 30. And that's what we did. We made a top 30 list and he would he had, he had his phones and I had mine. And uh, then we started tracking where they were. And we had my former boss was uh, in the airport and he was still there. And so we were putting together packets of information for him on the guys that we needed to get in. And so we were feeding up to him and he was able to start working down that list. So he would, you know, I was up when the Afghans were up. I was down when they were down. I uh, wake up in the middle of the night. I had my phones on full vibrate. And so I would be, get con contact information constantly uh, from them. And so, you know, at, at the same time where I'm doing this, like the, the job, um, I also have my personal life where I have all these Afghans because I spent, you know, three and a half years in Afghanistan. Um, and I've gotten, before I even arrived to DC, I started to help people. So I'm getting all this personal people reaching out to me as well. Um, so at that time, you know, CINCOM was um, asking people to put packets together and like sending it to them. And there was a bunch of stuff. And so I was actually, at that point, I, I, I was so overworked that I was having my wife like put together these packets. So, you know, she was back here at home in this room I'm in right now. The baby was, you know, playing around and she was using PDF stuff to, yes, to make packets and stuff. I would email her. I'd be like, I, cause I didn't have a computer that was, was very good. So I'd be like, I email her stuff. I'd be like, I need this put into a PDF packet so I can send it to my boss. So, you know, my wife, you know, with the baby in the background making like passport packets for Afghans that we were trying to get into HKIA so they could have everything. Um, it was completely insane. Um, you know, working, it was the highs and lows of like getting people in, you know, which was amazing euphoric and like, uh, something I, I, I've never experienced before. And then, you know, it was the lows of like, uh, this guy's not going to make it. Uh, he, he's too far outside of Kabul. Um, I, I don't know what to tell you. And then while that's going on, I'm also getting, starting to get tasked from, um, uh, my higher headquarters to get other people in as well. They weren't on my list. So we're getting outside organizations starting to come in. So like I got uh, a bus full of John Hopkins, like Afghan students in. there's like a hundred of them in a bus. I got people. And then I got my old um, commander, commander. So uh, my wing commander reached out to me. Hey, I have a, one of my old college, war college buddies uh, is trying to get in. Here he is. Can you get him in? You know, helping him in. So it was two weeks of like nonstop all the time, everywhere. And it was completely insane. Yeah. I can't even imagine that. And yeah, it was. So, how many was by the 
by the end, as you're getting these contacts, you have your personal contacts, you have your top 30 of the, you know, most at risk. How many people were you trying to get in at at maximum, do you think? Uh, Oh, at least the overall, over 200 I was trying to get in. Um, I wound up getting over like over 150 in, like if you count some of the buses and stuff like that, that we got in and then. You know, I was using my boss uh, uh, to get in, and then I had other contacts that I knew uh, that were Afghans that were part of the like national mission units, triple three guys like that that I knew that were working per- the you know perimeter, uh, different different gates that I knew that I was able to kind of wiggle my way in. You know, it was there was no rank. There was just like who you knew, and like you just kind of worked the system. Um, and so I got people in, in various different ways, you know, through the front gate, through the back gate, um, talking to Marines that I knew and stuff like that. They were able to like help me out, you know, call in favors from different people. Wow. And so when you say 150 in, you mean like they got in and didn't get, none of these people got pushed back out by state department no, because they in. all had packets and somebody in. to vouch for them. That's yeah very lucky for them. I can't hearing people talk about having to, to send Afghans back yeah. after getting in is just it, that I think was what finally broke me Yeah, on one of these podcast episodes. I couldn't handle it. It's like, that's, that's horrible. Yeah. Um, Luckily, I think one of the things that when I saw it fall, I had the bot, when I started to see it fall apart, I reached out to about 10 former guys that I knew really, really, really well. And I was like, go to the airport right now. Just go. Just go and run. Uh, because if, at a certain point in time, it's going to be harder for you guys to make it in. Go right now. And, uh, you know, I was talking to – I knew almost all the Afghan Air Force officers. Um, and so a lot of them I reached out to and found them. And then, you know, some of them, you know, as you know, like flew up to Tajikistan and kind of crashed and, and end up there as well. Um I have a buddy of mine who's a, one of the C-130 pilots. He flew down uh, to Kandahar and picked up some of the last remaining uh, ANDSF. And I was on the phone with him right before he left. It was like 14 August. And I'm like, dude, what are you doing? He's like, don't go. And, uh, yeah, he wound up – he was doing it a, f- a favor for some Americans to go down there and pick some guys up for him. So he flew down there, and uh, he did that favor, and they were able to get some of his family in. So – it was the Wild West. Um, it was, yeah, I, I don't think I've really put it all together. Um, but, you know, it was, it was, yeah, it was, it, it was, I couldn't believe it was happening. You know? Yeah. You're just like, is, yeah. This, is this really happening? Like, this is up to me to, to do this right now. Like, yeah. It's been, you know, and I, I have said this a lot on the podcast. I was not involved in that part mm. of things, but hearing you talk about, you know, your wife with the one and a half year old, my son yeah. was one and a half when I yeah. started doing work with operation 620 and we would have calls and my kid would just be sitting there in the background screaming. Cause it's like, no, this is important. Something important is happening. And like, oh, you got to balance all this. And it's just the, everything life went on, but it yeah. felt like life kind of stopped when that yeah. happened. And I knew, I mean, I, I left my job in Intel in 2013 and I knew mm-hmm. when this goes bad, it's going mm-hmm. to go very bad. Yeah. 
And it's still just, I had to stay away from it in the meantime, because mm -hmm. it made me so angry that it was continuing, but just limping along and it wasn't going to get fixed. And then, sure. oh, just August of 2021, I might not have <laughs> been doing things, but I was floored. My life did stop. All I did was try to understand what is happening right now. How can this, even though I knew this will be bad, yeah. it still just floored me. And yeah, I told my wife when I walked in uh, from my, I came back and I told her, I was like, when this thing falls apart, it's going to destroy me. Um, and it did. Uh, I, I I think that, you know, I hoped, I was hoping that they were, my hope was that they were going to make it to the winner. Uh, they would fight and they were whole to the winner and they would be able to kind of rearm and refit. And that, this is when you kind of um, get some you know, the criticism of, Ghani and some of the the senior senior members that they just didn't like plan to like really let some of these provinces go and like really put together a defensive plan around Kabul and you can mm -hmm. see it and so it was just it was just really sad because the best fighting generals they just didn't use them and it was just you could see it the whole year I was there it was just like this merry-go-round of core commanders it was really bad but yeah, yeah well and it's like you say that I have so many friends who served who were like, why would you do this in the middle of the fighting season? Yeah. Why would you abandon Bath? Why did you, it was a perfect storm of yeah. decisions that if they were tweaked slightly, you're right. It could have maybe held out till winter and had a different, you know, there, it could have been slightly different. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, when you, when you look back at it, um, there's a lot of things that it could, I wish it would have been done better. Um, but, uh, yeah, I just, those two weeks are a blur. I like the, the amount of people that I, that reached out to me, like I was just completely overwhelmed. Um, it was just nonstop all day long. And, you know, when, and then the suicide, and then the, the, the Abbey Gate bomber happened. Right. And at that point, that was it. Like nobody else was getting in unless you were an am sit. That was it. And so, that's when I started making phone calls um, to the Afghans and, you know, calling them on the phone and telling them that they were going to make it. Um, and those were, you know, um, I've made phone calls to people, uh, of parents of dead service members who were killed. And those were these phone calls that I had were excruciatingly difficult. Um, you know, people crying on the phone. Uh, you know, sending me pictures of their babies, you know, telling me, you know, please get them out, reminding me of everybody, all the schools they went to the United States, all that type of stuff, just flooding my phones, you know, and I always say that the hardest ones weren't those, the hardest ones were the ones where the Afghans were just really nice to me and just thanked me for trying, you know, because they had every reason to be upset with me because uh, I didn't get, him, didn't get him in, but I would say the majority of them were just like, we appreciate you even trying for us. And, you know, I told him that I would continue to try to get, get him out uh, and that I wouldn't stop. And I promised a lot of them that, like, look, I'm going to continue to fight for you, uh, even though this part of the Neo is over with. And so you did do that. You know, what? Did. It, how, let's talk about how that evolved from yeah. two weeks in D.C. to then returning to command. Yeah. and trying to advocate for those Afghans that didn't get in on the NEO. Yeah. I, uh, I came back and, you know, at that point, 
I probably, I probably have gotten before the Neo, probably like 10 of my interpreters, uh, previous employments are in the United States, their AMSITs, their SIVs that I got them in. And so at that point, you know, I'm talking to all of them and I'm like, look, they have guys that they want to get out, family members. And, you know, I still have my list of people that I'm trying to get out. And so we basically form our own little group. Um, and I am like, I'm like, these are the people that I need you to like reach out to and work. And I'm going to, you know, start figuring out ways to get some people out. Um, at that point, you know, I detached from the, the you know, on the books uh, portion of this whole event and really started working off the books, uh, latching on to different, you know, signal groups. Uh, God, I don't remember how many, there's hundreds of them. Um, and then just really, I, I stumbled upon, you know, the Operation Sacred Promise at that point, it was starting to really get formed. It had been formed during the NEO, and so I latched on there, and I also latched on to uh, Allied Airlift as well, started getting people on. But I just kind of – it just happened, and I just didn't want to give up on some of these guys. And at that point, as you know, like in the first three or four months after the NEO, it was still the Wild West, and you could still get people out and in to different places, um, you know, without fully sanctioned – you know, blessings of everybody and you people were chartering planes, they were smuggling people out, they were doing all sorts of stuff. It was, I always tell people, you know, the Afghan Neo and the months afterwards is like the worst of the military because of what happened. And then also the best of like all these active duty service members and, and veterans and then all the people who also worked in Afghanistan, like forming the backbone of the American government's evacuation response was just ordinary people yeah and so like i just kind of stumbled into people and started forming networks and like we just started uh moving people around i mean i had like at one point i was working you know eight hours a day as a commander i'd come home and i'd put another six hours in here right right where right where, where i'm speaking to you and um i would just grind all day you know because it's like I'd have my phone on me. I'd fall asleep. I get a ring. It's like, hey, we got a slot. Who do you want to send? And it's like, ah, you know, kind of run up, throw them somebody. And so I kept on grinding and they kept on getting people out. I was, you know, just very dogged about it. And, you know, I just somehow, I don't know how I was able to survive doing that and being in command at the same time. I had a really good team around me. I got really lucky. Um, and I was just like, yeah, this is, this is going to be a lot for me. It was, it was brutal on me mental health wise. Like it was just, I, you know, I, I, I started you know, going to therapy. I was just like breaking down. It was just, you know, it was just, I tell people I uh, spent, you know, four and a half years in Iraq and Afghanistan. I've seen a lot of, of combat, but the trauma I felt during the Neo and during afterwards is more than I ever saw in person in combat by far. And it's not close. It's, sure. uh, I, what do you think, how, so seeing the therapist, was that helpful or did you still find that you were hitting a wall there? What was that like? Yeah. You know, so I, I got diagnosed with combat PTSD in 2008. Um, but this was something different. Um, and I d couldn't really kind of put my finger on it and I kind of realized it was, 
moral injury. And I was just, it was, I tell people, you know, combat PTSD, I've had chronic combat PTSD for a long time, but I've learned how to kind of deal with it and I know what my triggers are and all that type of stuff. But this was something completely different because um, I felt that I had been betrayed in everything that I had fought for. Had the, the narrative that I had built my life around had just come crumbling down. And so it was just, I, uh, you know, I think working on the Neo afterwards was a way of, of, of denial of like, not, you know, like still working. I'm still going to do this. I can still get all these people out. I can still get these people out. I can still fix this. And uh, there's, you know, at a certain point in time, I, I think I realized probably in November or December, I was like, you know, I don't know what I, there's not much else I can do. You know, you're getting, yeah. I'm still finding AMSITs, I'm getting, you know, LPRs, legal permanent residents, um, SIVs, all of it, you know, and you're just like the P1, P2s, I've become an immigration lawyer, like part-time, um, you know, I'm like, what am I doing? Like, I have no idea what this is all about, you know, but you learn, you know, and you have to start like having very hard conversations with people. I mean, I'm sure you've talked to a lot of people, you know, you're the one that has to tell them like, hey, like. I'm sorry you can't take your mom. I'm really sorry you can't take your brother. I'm really sorry you can't take your daughter who's over 21. Um, you're gonna, you know, I've had these conversations thousands of times, you know, I, and it still happens to this day. Like I'm talking to somebody today who made it over who I got out and it's like, what should I do with my mom and dad? They have P1s, should they go to a third country? Should they stay? And I'm just like, there are no good options. There's, there aren't none. Um, nope. I can't make that call for you, you know? It, and that's the hardest thing. I mean, there would be people who would say, there's one woman that I've been talking with since probably November of 2021. Lovely, sweet woman, was married, forcibly married at 13, had, yeah. I think, four or five kids by 18, uh, was beaten by her husband, and her husband worked with the Taliban and was trying to get her daughter um, yeah. to marry a Talib. And she's like, do I go to Iran? Do I go to Pakistan? And I'm thinking, I cannot advise you on that. You know, and she thought she had a P1 referral, but she did not. And all these things, you know, you've got all these stories and they're not just stories, they're human lives. Yeah. And it's just like, it, it weighed on me so heavily that I ended up, I just, that's all I did. I would just sit there and I would answer hundreds of messages every single day trying to help people. And yeah. what really kills me is we look at, the USRAP today, all those P1 and P2 referrals who were like, oh, thank God I have a referral. Something like 94 of the percent of them have not been processed. And yep. those are the ones that got the referral after 46,000 were put forward, 26,000 got a referral, 94% still unprocessed. And yep. so of course there's moral injury where you're you know, what is this? Bill Raggio said it, and everyone who comes on here says this in some way or shape or form. I used to be proud of my country. And then this happened. And I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I don't, I'm not saying you're saying that I am. I feel yeah, yeah, no, very I, I, distinct, <laughs> like what happened here? I used to believe in this country and now I see this and I, I've never been more devastated. Yeah, it was devastating for me. I think that yeah, I think, you know, P1s when they first, you know, I didn't know anything about what a P1 was. And then, I, you know, you find out and you're like, oh, this is going to be the ticket, right? So this is what it's going to be. You know, you're just going to get the P1 and then it's just going to happen, right? Or, and then you realize that 
they were useless. I mean, they're better than nothing, right? Um, but, uh, you know, you just kind of like, it starts to dawn on me in uh, probably January that like, there's, I'm hitting a wall here and there's not much more I can do. I mean, I, I kind of, I worked, I worked on Neo Afghan evac stuff nonstop for almost a year, like all day long. And I finally kind of just started to disintegrate. And, you know, it was, you know, the Afghans that I had knew they were getting killed in Afghanistan, the Taliban were hunting and killing them. Uh, I have find it very interesting that I still run into people who think that uh, the Taliban are not hunting these people. It just it's boggles my mind. Um, but yeah, I, I do it all the time. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I just, you know, you're moving people into different uh, places, moving them here and there, trying to get them out on different places. And then you just realize that like, there's not much else I can do and I can just, you know, try to like help you like check on your cases, SIV cases. If you have one at this point, you know, just like, if you don't have an SIV case, like there's nothing I can do for you. You know, you can do a P1. I had like, you know, I referred like P1s like all day long. Like I had a lot of contacts in Afghanistan who I went to bat for. and I got on P1 numbers. Right. Mm -hmm. And after that, you're just like, there's nothing else I can do for you. Um, if there's a, if I get magic tickets, believe me, I have like, I still have a top five list of magic tickets. If somebody gives me one that I, that I have it ready to throw at people. But at that point, you just kind of resign yourself to the fact that this is the way it's going to be. And it's, it is a devastating thing to kind of come to terms with that because you're the one, you're the one that has to have those conversations with people. You know, I, I say, you know, the, one of the, the tragedies of the all-volunteer force um, is that, you know, we're the ones that, that fight the wars. And when they don't go that well, we're the ones that are also have to pick up the pieces. And uh, losing a war is very difficult, right? The losing war is, it hollows you out. But when you feel like your principles have been betrayed, that's even worse, I would say leaving people behind because we don't do that. And so when that happens, um, it's devastating and it creates, I mean, moral injury that just hollows you out. I, you know, there's, I, yeah, I, I deal with it all the time. I think, you know, and I'd like to, for listeners, viewers who haven't watched it, we did do an episode where you talked about moral yep. injury and it stuck with me. I mean, the second we finished that recording, it just, it was like in my head, the, what is the story? And it's, as I'm thinking of that now, like you have to, the story has to change. And how does the story change when all the messaging from the U S government is look how well we did on the Neo. Look, we have this U S RAP program. Look, if you were here and your asylum is running out, you can apply to have your asylum renewed. But you and I, and everybody who does this knows about the people who've come here, who you know, claimed asylum and tried to come across the border and yeah. are now like me threatening, being threatened with deportation. The people who are living in incredible uncertainty in Afghanistan, who are in yeah. Pakistan being threatened every day with, I just yep. saw a video of the ISI beating the hell out of people yep. because they're Afghan refugees and they want them out of Pakistan sure. where we told them go to a country. If you want to be processed for P1, P2, yep. go to a country where there's an operating embassy. Well, guess yep. where there's an operating embassy across yep. Torkham in Pakistan. <laughs> 
Uh, and how many people fled that way in hopes of something. And now they're getting beaten by the ISI. So it's just really hard. Like, how do you begin to address that moral injury that the few people who still care about this are experiencing if you can't actually own up to the fact that this was, this was done poorly, that there are so many humans at stake and that people care about them. You know, those people you're not Jesus for me. I have come to know many of these people, but I still know them via the internet. I've never sat with them. I've never had a conversation with them in, in, you know, face to face. And so for somebody like you or like, yeah, I mean, like anyone whose interpreter or whose colleague is over there, it's a very different. um... Yeah. I am. uh, So I, I have an article coming out on the anniversary, uh, the two year anniversary for the bulwark. Um, and it's, it's about, so I just, so my TDY, I, I just came out of like a, uh, an intensive inpatient treatment program on moral injury and PTSD. And I spent my entire month in treatment talking about Afghanistan. Like it was about the people I left behind and how absolutely brutal that was for me. And, you know, I went from, I was a squadron, I, you know, I finished squadron command and, you know, successfully finished it and six days later i was in a treatment facility for ptsd and tbis and a moral injury and i you know that was and it's all like the the impetus for it was all afghanistan and i wasn't the only one in there that was talking about afghanistan right i mean a lot of the guys in there um combat veterans multiple tours uh, the, the the number one thing that that brought us all together is what the hell happened? And it, you could see the devastation on all of our faces about it. It's a, it is something that, you know, at a certain point in time, like you just can't keep on saying like nothing at a certain point in time. I just, somebody's going to have to say something because we owe it to the people to at least say, Hey, this, this, uh, this could have been done better. And these are the things that like, we're going to do to get it better. Because it should never have been up to me and like my interpreters to get people out, right? I mean, that's not how you want to do business. And the things that I remember are, you know, having phone calls with active duty service members during that first year and, you know, who hadn't been involved really. And like them crying on the phone or like having breakdowns and me like trying to like help them like, okay, hey man, like we're gonna, I can try to help you with this guy. Like it's not a high percentage chance, but I'll try my best. And like, it's just like these psychic breakdowns that you're having left and right with people um, who are coming to terms that we're gonna leave these people behind. That's what's gonna happen. Yeah, or I mean, I've heard we had an HKIA veteran come on who came to, went to the VA and said, hey, I, I've got PTSD. Yeah. And they said, well, no, you weren't in a combat zone. He said, I was at H Kaya and they would not diagnose him with PTSD. And to me, that's just like, that's crazy. What in the hell? And that's, that was with, um, mostly OAR foundation veterans, which I think that's a great initiative to get people who were there at H Kaya together to talk about what they went through without people saying, Oh, there was no chaos from my perch. Without somebody saying what you experienced was not valid without somebody saying, no, there was no PK fight firing going on after the suicide bomber when yeah. those people who were there 
yeah. many of them report having heard or AK fire, not PK. Yeah. Anyway, PKM. AK fire. Yeah. PKM. Yeah. 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 So old, man. All these things that are coming into yeah. my head are from way you long know, ago. But I always said that the tragedy is so, there's so many layers to it. Um, and it's so, it's so awful um, that people just turn their, their head away from it like they did the last 20 years. And so it's up to like, you know, like I told my wife, like, you know, I will continue to like write about what happened and, and, and advocate about what happened because somebody's got to remember uh, for the Afghans because they deserve it. Um, you know, the real tragedy isn't like the tragedy. Yes, is for us at moral injury and all the PTSD, but the real victims are the Afghans we left behind. Like, yep. You know the guys that I told that like I would I would I would fight next to that I told that I would I would be there, you know the the we were the ones and I was I did very often, you know make promises on behalf of this government, and it's it's brutal to be the one to have to do that and then see it fall apart. Yeah. Oh, and I I believed what we said too. I was absolutely that's what got me involved in this. The U.S. was saying. You fight with us, we're going to make sure that you're good to go. We won't leave until yeah. things are good to go. And that's, I think, why when 2013 hit, and I'll always remember the moment when the Taliban raised their flag at the mm -hmm. Doha office, mm -hmm. like they were in government in exile. And I said, that's it. That's yeah. it. I had to put it away because yeah. I was going to lose my mind. Sure. And I was so angry. And here I am, this housewife in the middle of America, just mm -hmm. like, f I'm going to lose it, you know? Yeah. And And then it all happened and... And I think I did. I mean, I, I've hit many walls. I have sure. run myself ragged and I've had to do kind of the pullback and like yep. get into your real life too, because it's still your, like you have to live your life you and have you have to help, it. but, but it's really important. I mean, these are humans. I, you know, everybody just saw the Thomas West meeting with the yep. freaking Taliban. And you think, why, why? Because they're still doing all the same things. They're mm -hmm. still killing people indiscriminately who are their enemies they are still taking away all the rights from women and and then this this meeting happens and literally what, a week later the taliban then said oh no now girls are only going to be able to go to school till 10. that's what happened from that meeting like good job guys yeah, yeah the, the taliban, taliban are changed change. no yeah. i mean they're nope. like just it's not going to happen. Um, I saw it the last year there, like people were telling me that they were going to moderate. I, I ran into that a lot. And I was just like, just read what they say and listen to what they say. You should listen to people when they tell you who they are. And they've yes. been saying this the entire time. This isn't new. They just have better technology now. And they know, yeah. and they, and they, and they're better at uh, speaking English and they're better at manipulating the West than they used to be. And so, yeah, that's what and they, they did lie in the beginning because right. they did say, oh, well, our women will have the same rights as our, our sisters will have the same rights as our brothers. And they said that and I just sat there and I thought, no, mm -mm, yeah. no, if you believe this, you are foolish. Yeah. And we did because it was expedient to do that. And then thank God for the people who did what you did, what so many other volunteers did. And so before we wrap up, I want to hear about how did you, you know, that first year you were really pulling hard yeah. and doing all these things and what kind of was your process for what is the involvement like for you now? How are yeah. you balancing that? Yeah. So I told my wife when, when I came back from the Neo in the two weeks, I was like, I'm going to give this a year. 
I'll give it one year, like really hard. And so after the first year was over with, I was like, okay, I got to put this down. Um, and so like, I still, I had some people that I was still helping. And so I just, it was kind of like, I had to start putting more barriers up and like, no, 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 like I'm done. Like I'm done guys. And so, you know, I am still, uh, part of, you know, um, OSP, there's not that many of us left. Um, but like, you know, I still, um, help out a couple of the, uh, Afghans that I know, uh, that are American citizens. So I still do advocacy for them and I still write about it. And I, I think that that'll be my ticket going forward is really just being somebody who remembers and, and, and you know, who, who remembers all the things that happened, uh, the final year and then all the years I was there before that, uh, because I remember all the things that we said and all the things that we tried to do while we were there. And I don't, I don't want us to forget what happened because I don't want it to happen again. And, and, and we can't just turn the page like we did in Vietnam and then totally forget all the, all the lessons like we did last time. I, I, I don't, I'll do my best on that, but my goal is to continue to advocate for, Afghans as much as I can, but more in the writing realm instead of being case managers because I just don't have the bandwidth for it anymore. Yeah, that is a, I only very briefly did any case management and it was very tough to do uh, because there are so many concerns that yeah. Afghans have and you have to, I mean, you, you need to be able to answer those yeah. and trying to balance that with writing. I could not keep that up. I, and I, the people who are still doing that, I think are a special breed Yes, but for me, writing is it's the therapy of it. Yep, it's for sure. Processing you know, it all. Yeah. And, yeah. and yeah, being able to put it down and look at it later and say, <laughs> in fact, it was helpful to me when I went back to the state department because they told me, oh, this many P1 and P2s have, have been applied. And I said, actually, here's an article from last year where you told me it was double that. So can you maybe look at that again? You know, mm -hmm. like, come on guys. So it's, it can be helpful for a lot of reasons to sure. remember the truths to, keep people honest, hopefully, because there are a lot of people who are still trying to forget and, yep. and tell us that, no, we just need to, if we just, if we just talk to the Taliban, they're reasonable, they're diplomatic. They will, they will let women do things again. If we just talk to them, right? Like Sarah Jean McConaughey's the minister of interior. That's all you need to know. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, whose house was Ayman al-Zawahiri staying at? when he yep. got a bomb in his forehead. Yep. That would be Siraj Haqqani's house. Yep. Yeah, it's absolutely, um, <sighs> yeah, it's a lot. There are so many. I know many, you guys have yeah. Bill Raggio in here. I mean, he'll, you know, he's, he's been right about this stuff for, for decades, so. Yep, yep, that's why we wanted him to lead off this sub-series because his map, you know, he was, yep. I, and I've had this happen to me too, uh, as I talked about in this ep that episode, but, you know, being called basically a Taliban sympathizer for saying that the Taliban were not completely, you know, backwater, incapable people. They didn't have to be like us. They had to be successful for the field that they were in and they were. Yep. So, and it's, you know, especially when you said to them, well, you can't attack us anymore. Well, no, I have never talked about that. I wonder what are your thoughts on that? Where, when we said, well, if you stop attacking us troops, then mm -hmm. you're good. Like, and then I'd almost yeah, I mean, like, the made whole, it easier the for them. Movement, I think you can look back on it and 
there was a point in time when I first started, I was like, well, what is this going to be like? What are we doing? Because I think when we start, first started getting into it, I was like, I think it was obvious at that point that all we were, at least a, a lot of the people were just done with it, right? So you're like, okay, well, let's see what happens here. Um, but I think that when when all that type of stuff got out, like you don't have to attack us and all that, because it was it was open and people knew about it. And it was just the problem with that, among many different things, was that it just sapped the morale out of the ANDSF. I mean, it was just like, you know, you can't like go up and tell them to fight harder when you're like, well, you just cut a deal with these guys not to attack you. Right. So it's right. easy for you to say that. Like. Well, what are you talking and about? they didn't even get a voice. The Afghan right. government got no voice. So yeah. when you've propped up, and I mean, the Taliban called them a puppet government on mm -hmm. purpose because we did prop them up. I mean, we were puppeteering the way that they were. And so when we said, oh, well, we're not even going to include you. It's just us and the Taliban. Like, to me, that would be the point where I was like, uh, it's time to figure out what the next step is because I'm not going to be in it. Yeah, the whole Doha piece, like, you know, when I was there, there, you could just tell that when the 5,000 were released, that was a huge deal. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I remember when they started doing the inter-Afghan, you know, inter-Afghan dialogue, it was just very obvious that the Taliban were just stringing them along. They were debating over the minutia of, like, holding the talks. And the, the big breakthrough when I was there was that they had agreed on a format to have the talks in. Right. And so it was just like this huge delaying uh, tactic by them. And they while they were doing this, they were making battlefield gains and their assassination campaign was just increasing, increasing all inside of Kabul. And it was really, really deadly, and really effective. Um, and unfortunately, at that point in time, uh, yeah, like a lot of the, uh, the the good generals were just not there. And it was just yeah, it, it, it sapped the morale out of the ANDSF and. You can see it in, in Ukraine, like morale is important. Morale is the will to fight is an important thing. And, uh, you know, when you, when you lose that because the, your allies are leaving and you can see that they're heading for the doors, it saps your will. And so it's easy to say the Afghans didn't fight. 68,000 of them died, 3,300 the last year, right? Um, but at a certain point in time, you know, the Taliban – like they had, they had a, they were a state sponsored insurgency from, from Pakistan. Right. I mean, so they had their sponsor and they stuck with them. I mean, if they didn't have Pakistan providing material support and a safe haven, they wouldn't have, they, they, they would not have been as successful. Right. Yep. But their back backer stayed into the game. Right. I mean, this isn't, yep. I'm not revealing national secrets. I mean, the ISI chief was the first visitor after the, after Afghanistan fell, right? I mean, he was the first guy. And his quote was, don't worry, everything's going to be okay. Yep. They just hold up in the places where we could not go get them. Yep. Very easily. And and as Bill said in the episode that will air first uh, of this series is, um, you know, it's insane the percentage of Taliban senior leaders that are unchanged or, mm -hmm. or the, like, you know, the sons of the originals yeah. from 2000, 2001 period. So around 98 to 2001, yeah. they're the same. They sure. stayed in safe places. They were well hidden and yeah, that's, it was a cluster For and sure. a very complicated problem. And, um, 
as my mother reminded me this morning, you just don't invade Afghanistan and expect to be successful. She's a history teacher. And, uh -huh. and that's, uh, that was her, her, uh, reminder, you know, it's, it's not an easy, it's a country that has centuries of difficulties, Sure. you know, roiling about inside of it. And I think this has been such a, like your insights from, from before mm. to throughout are really so valuable. And is there anything you think we missed or anything you want to say to listeners before we sign off here? Yeah, I think, you know, my, my thing is that I think it's when we talk about Afghanistan, uh, we should always remember the Afghans as a, this, the main victims in this whole thing. They're the number one victims in this whole thing. Um, we tend to, to focus on this only through the American lens of like what it did to us, what it's done to veterans and combat and all that stuff. And that's very important. Um, but the real victims, the ones whose, whose country has been completely turned upside down are the Afghans. And they're the ones that are suffering. They're the ones that suffer every day. Um, it, it, the war continues for, for them. Right. We only stopped it for us. Yep, for sure. That was it. And not for everybody because people yep. like yourself are still fighting. People yep. who are going in to save their colleagues or who yep. are going back to save their parents. Yep. Those people didn't get to leave the war. So... Absolutely. And that just brings me to, you know, we usually like to end these episodes with a story from an Afghan because mm -hmm. it is, you know, talking with fellow Americans about this is one thing. And that's a, you know, it's great because we do have things to process, but really this is ongoing for Afghans. And we always want to end with stories from people who are still experiencing um, the pain of the yeah. post-withdrawal period or who experienced pain during the war, anything, it, you know, we, any experience is valid and we want to share it. So if you have a story, um, send it to us. It can be any format you like, and it can go to our show address, which is the Afghanistan project podcast at gmail.com. Well, uh, this has been really enlightening. I've learned so much and it's been a really enjoyable time. So thanks for joining us again to talk thanks about for having me Afghanistan. On. Appreciate it. Yeah. Glad to have you. Uh, thanks to all our listeners for sharing your time and supporting the people of Afghanistan, Tasha Kaur, and we hope to see you again soon.